In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Welcome to episode 27 of the Paw and Order podcast, coming to you from Toronto, and a special treat. I'm in person today with Peter. 27 is the charm, Camille. Apparently every 27th episode we get together in Toronto. Very exciting to be here um, with you. It's just so much more fun. I get to look at you and I can see when you're disappointed with my sarcastic comments instead of hearing them over the microphone. Which is a lot, so brace yourself. (laughs) So, So what brings you to Toronto? That was an eye roll. There was an eye roll right there. No, that was an eye roll. Uh, What brings me to Toronto? I am here in Toronto. I'm doing some business. I just came here for a mooting competition with my students. Very exciting. I do it once a year. Every February, we come to Toronto. And this year, my God, we managed to win the mooting competition, which just makes it extra special. That's really cool. So, Peter, you were doing the Gale Cup, which anyone who's listening who went to law school or is currently in law school, I know you'll have heard of this because it's sort of the premier criminal law moot that uh, everyone does in law school. And when I say moot, it took me a while to realize that not everybody knows what that term means. It's really specific to lawyers and law students, but it's basically a fake appellate advocacy experience. It is a fake in the sense that there is actually nobody at stake, which is probably how you want it when students are advocating. You don't (laughs) want to be doing a real appeal. The interesting thing is it's called a moot, but there are real judges. So it's done before judges. I mean, we just went before a Supreme Court of Canada judge. And so, yes, it is fake, but it is very real to the students who are going through this. It's sort of like, you know, when the doctors do those like operating or like CPR things on a dummy. That's exactly what this is like. It's like, it's very real to the person doing it, but thankfully no one's life is at stake. The stakes are low for yeah. any potential clients out there. But the cool thing is it's always a, a real case, yeah. like a real Canadian criminal law case, usually one that goes to the Supreme Court and is of some type of interest. Yes. So what were the main issues this it year? It was a constitutional case. So it was about search and seizure of text messages. All of you out there with text messages, this was big to you. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was great to uh, catch up with some old friends and to uh, see my students do so well. And winning, I got to tell you, Camille, winning is is extra great in itself. I mean, this is a big competition. There's 18 law schools. So when we win, we get this huge cup. We get a big celebration. It's freaking fantastic. And I have to tell you, like, one of the best parts that's so fantastic is it's like the Stanley Cup. So we literally were drinking out of it late into the night. I'm, I'm amazed I'm kind of here doing this podcast. But wow. that was that was two days ago. So Party animal. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, luckily, all those beverages are vegan. So I'm able to drink them <laughs> off because it was just, it was wild. You don't get to do that much in life right there's not many chances for you to drink out of a big cup so when the opportunity comes yeah no I've never won an award with a big cup so that's that's kind of cool well congratulations thanks very proud of you guys very happy to be a part of it wow well I've been in Toronto as well we had a a very cool event at University of Toronto Law School the other week Animal Justice co-hosted this with the Animal Law Lab which is a, a group that works out of there and holds meetings and talks about issues 
as well as the Student Animal Law Clubs at Osgood and U of T. And it was a guest speaker, Justin Merceau, who's a professor at the University of Denver. He's written a new book uh, challenging the idea that prosecution of animal cruelty offenses is a legitimate way, way to achieve animal liberation and pointing out some of the problems with incarcerating people while we seek to get uh, animals out of cages. So really packed room. It was exciting to see that much interest in Toronto for an event like this. Uh, so that was fun, Peter. Well, what, tell me a little bit more about it. Like, how did the talk go? Like, I guess he was going through the theory of the, the book and the talk, correct? Yeah, so uh, he has a new book coming out. It's called Beyond Cages, and it is, I believe, released, being released sometime this spring. Not sure exactly right. when. But it goes through a few problems with sort of the tough-on-crime mentality in general. Um, chief among them when it comes to the issue of animals is how putting people in jail, there's no evidence that that reduces the risks to animals. It doesn't result in less offending. Um, if anything, it likely results in more uh, criminality in the future for people who are incarcerated. And, and I think there's a good case. I mean, I, I, I haven't read the book, um, and um, I haven't had a chance to uh, dig into the theory, but there's no question that the idea, if you've heard me on this podcast before, I, I am one of the very few voices in the animal law community that uh, – is never or very rarely in favor of ratcheting up penalties. Um, if you, you may remember, Camille, that I was asked that question in Parliament. That question actually came up uh, when we spoke about the bestiality bill. That's right. And somebody asked me, one of them asked me about, you know, this is a real problem. You know, animal cruelty needs to be taken more seriously. Do you think it's a good idea to raise penalties? And I was like... I was like, no, I really don't think that's a good idea. I think there are a lot of reasons, not quite the same ones as Justin, um, about why raising penalties can be counterproductive. But one thing I'll raise that just came to mind when you were talking about Justin's event is, like, I've been reading a lot of cases recently about hoarders and about people who are essentially for lack of a better word, they suffer from mental illnesses that involves them taking on far more animals than they can. And I am not convinced in those cases that jail is somehow some sort of solution to dealing with hoarding problems. Now, to be clear, I'm not sure there's an easy solution, though I think prohibition orders would help and the ability to seize those animals without having to go through the criminal system um, whenever they're in danger. But but nonetheless, uh, it's, it's, it's not always clear to me in those situations that jail is going to do anything about anything. No, and I think a lot of people understandably have a gut reaction when they see a case of cruelty that we should lock that person up. We should seek jail. We should seek the maximum sentence available for them. And uh, you know, it, it's hard to fault people for feeling that way because it is evidence that we care about animals to some extent, that we want to see justice for them. But then when you start to look rationally at what incarcerating people actually produces, the effects, negative effects for society, so whether it be the cost of incarcerating them, uh, the damage it does to them psychologically, like we know so much more now about prisons based on sociological research and how very, very damaging it is to human beings. And uh, that becomes a problem. And then what do the animals actually get out of that? It arguably doesn't increase outcomes for them. Uh, focusing on these discrete cruelty cases as well, which when we talk about cruelty prosecutions and incarcerations, they're almost universally, Peter, neglect cases. They're cases where someone is sadistically cruel to an animal, and we almost never see prosecutions of the mass-scale industrialized cruelty that happens on farms, in laboratories, in the fur industry, uh, in other ways that we use animals on a profit-based industrial scale. 
Yeah, well, we've talked about that before, the idea of um, providing a missed... Uh, I think we've talked about it before, and if not, it's a good time to talk about it because I, I, I agree entirely with the idea that I have always been concerned in my research with the idea of what message are we transmitting about what cruelty is because I do agree with you when the, the, the nature of the way in which we focus on certain cruelty prosecutions and send certain people to jail at the expense of others, um, it's very troubling when you're talking about what cruelty is. And a good example of that, just to, to, to um, something I talked about my students with last week on a different, uh, for a different purpose, it was involving regulatory prosecutions, is just like compare and contrast, you know, what is going on when you have this one-time abuser who beats a dog or whatever, some of the terrible cases we've seen where there's a horrible case of cruelty, no matter how severe it is with an axe or whatever, and that person is getting, I don't know, in a worst case, like six months, maybe a year if it's a really extreme case. And then you compare that with what Maple Lodge Company was doing with, with, with chicken transport in situations where they were, as far as I could tell, knowingly transporting chickens in situations uh, of extreme freezing. For anybody who's interested in this, just go look at, you know, Google Maple Lodge prosecution from 2014. And you're talking like no one was prosecuted for that. The company was prosecuted in the sense the company did have to pay a fine of $80,000, which, you know, we could debate the merits of that to begin with. But, but it was just amazing that like nobody, despite the people who were making decisions that were leading to thousands of chickens suffering for fairly extreme periods before freezing to death and everybody's like yeah all cool yeah they're arriving frozen like hockey pucks at the slaughterhouse and that was the response so i think that's a legitimate point and uh you bring up the idea of what message we're sending uh the other issue and sort of related to that is the fact that industry is happy enough for cruelty prosecutions to unfold for individual cases and use them as cover and one interesting one probably the most interesting thing about Justin's research and book from my perspective is uh, what he's uncovered about in the states where states have increased the severity of animal cruelty offenses a lot of the time what they do around that same time in the same piece of legislation the same bill where they increase the penalties or make it a felony instead of a misdemeanor is they exempt farmed animal operations from the operation of those felony statutes. So the trade-off there where you're getting a stronger symbolic sort of measure for cruelty prosecutions, but you're actually losing the ability to prosecute most, most farms, it's astounding. It, it corresponds to my research. I did, a, I did a talk in New Zealand a long time ago where I said, look, the problem is the more you ratchet it up, this was, this was literally the argument I made to the politicians who wanted to ratchet up sentencing. I said the more you ratchet up sentencing, the more you lose the ability to convince people that the wrongful conduct that needs to be punished is in the realm of what we regard as so-called legitimate conduct. This is why I, I think it's laughable whenever farmers, you know, send me tweets saying, well, we're regulated. This is the criminal code regulating us, right? The criminal code says you can't be cruel to an animal, so we're being regulated. I'm like, no, that's, that's just simply not so. So long as you are allowed for the various ways we define what allowed means to treat animals in particular ways by these various codes and all these things that say you can treat animals in the industrial context in one way or another, the less possible it is to use criminal prohibitions. And I was of the view that if we ever want to really get serious about animals, and let's be clear, Camille, at the moment, we don't really want to be serious about animals. But if we ever do, we've got to be much more 
uh, sensible about the way in which we define what cruelty and what inhumane actually is. Because as long as we're lumping it all in the same basket, you're absolutely right. What happens is, and Justin's absolutely right, what happens is we go after the criminals. And that defines the scope of it by definition, leaving everyone else off the hook. Yeah, 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 totally, totally. Anyway, that's an interesting topic. Why we could have made that our topic. Of well, the day, we could have. I was just talking about Beyond Cages. And darn it, Camille, we should have not. <laughs> we'll have Justin on when the book comes out to discuss this in more detail because it's such a fascinating topic. And I think a real good cautionary tale for Canada. He's speaking a lot about what has happened in the States. We have a much different situation here. We're much less tough on crime as a nation. And so this idea of prosecutions as the be-all and end-all of animal law hasn't crept into quite the same extent up here. So I think we have an opportunity to avoid that. I'll say that I think you're right, but I'll, I'll, I'll say that like my own research shows that you're right. We don't sentence to as long. There's no question. But the divide that you and I were talking about, that does exist. And I think that um, when I was doing my research on animal cruelty prosecutions and the types of things we prosecuted, what I saw were those malicious cases of cruelty were the ones that were getting the biggest dings. It's just it's the same idea. And I do think that disparity, um, as we continue to ratchet up sentencing for animal cruelty, could, could, could become ultimately in the same sort of vein as what Justin's talking about. So Yeah, no, I don't disagree. I'm more focused on like the what the animal groups in this country do. Like we've never had this really, really strong tradition of calling for blood. Like in the States, a lot of them do. A lot of groups are actively involved in helping prosecutors bring cases of individualized cruelty. Whereas I would say right now in Canada People are more focused on the institutional abuses and trying to motivate prosecutions yes. there. I mean, when the sled dog case went down many years ago, there was a lot of bang for blood. And when we when we do get a really bad case, I do get that sense of bang for blood. Uh, maybe I'm yeah, I probably bang for blood and, myself yeah. a little bit in those cases. But anyway, yeah. we'll we'll come back it's to a, this it's issue. It's an interesting for sure. idea. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What else has been going on? I I, I sense. Lots. Well, we've had lots of excitement about the animal law conference at Animal Justice and the University of Dalhousie, the Schulich School of Law. Oh my God, I can't say that. I, every time I did... Okay. Schulich. Schulich. Camille. I said Schulich Schul... Uh, anyway, the Schulich School of Law. The Schulich School of Thank Law. Thank you. Yes. That we're hosting together in October, uh, October 4th to 6th. So we've received quite a few submissions so far. Uh, the call for submissions ends March 18th, so don't miss out if you're thinking about trying to speak or present. We're looking for people to propose panel ideas, individual presentations. The theme of the conference is looking uh, forward to the future, but learning lessons from the past, learning lessons from other jurisdictions, thinking about how we mold this field in Canada into the future. So we welcome presentations from other uh, countries, as long as they pertain to some um, strategic consideration in Canada. But there's really a lot of scope there to do something interesting. So please do visit the website. It's CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca. We're so excited about this and hope to see lots of you there. It's going to be great. We are especially, I'm already excited about the live pawn order that's going to take place on the Friday. I've, I, I've just made a you know, decision that that's what's going to Okay, happen. all right. That's news to we me, did, but that's fine. No, we talked about it last episode. I'm pretty sure I floated the idea of a live pawn order. But I think a live pawn order as part of our student day would be uh, really exciting. Yeah, yeah, good idea. So there is a student day. If you're a student and you're listening and you want to get involved, visit the website. Uh, don't forget that Peter Singer is going to be the keynote speaker, author of Animal Liberation. Very excited about that, too. And with that, Peter, I think... I've it's got time a few to special words to say about our sponsor. Yes, it was time. Gee, we almost forgot. It's time to talk about our sponsor, the Grinning Goat. The Grinning Goat. 
We love them. We love the Grinning Goat. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique. They are online at grinninggoat.ca. They also have a storefront in Calgary on 17th Avenue Southwest. They have footwear. I own many of their pairs of shoes. You do as well. I do. I have purchased clothing there. I've got a great shirt actually from the Grinning Goat that says Calgary on it. Like Calgary, get it? But Kale, which is I like great. It. I was born in Calgary, so that's kind of cool for me. And they ship across the country, so you can buy their stuff no matter where you live. We love them. For Paw and Order dis- or listeners, there's a special discount code. It's Paw15. You'll get 15% off your order. So please check them out. Now, Camille, I should point out that I left Edmonton on this trip just on Valentine's Day, but I should point out maybe the mail was late, but I I, I checked the mail before Valentine's Day and I had not received a Grinning Goat package, uh, a special, they had special Valentine's Day packages from, I had not received one from you or from our (laughs) listeners. (laughs) And and we did talk about it on the last episode and I was kind of hoping Maybe I was getting a Valentine, but it it, it looks grim, Camille. Oh my God. Nobody in the Paw and Order audience wants me to be their Valentine. Well, <laughs> so it I didn't just get didn't any happen. Valentines either. If that makes you feel better, but I guess I guess our listeners don't love us that much. Maybe not. But I should say that when this episode is over, Camille and I will be enjoying some time at. We, this is this is literally we we are not getting any sponsorship revenue for this. <laughs> although we should tell them that we're doing this because we yeah. are going to Toronto's own Virtuous Pie. So we are very excited about that. So we've got to move through this episode so that we can eat. Yeah. So if you, if you notice that we're kind of like rushing, we're just hungry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We should get into uh, in the news segment. It's pretty busy. Uh, why don't you lead us off, Camille? All right. As always, there's lots going on. The first story we want to talk about is a piece from Newsweek about whether Canada Goose jackets are unethical and explaining the controversy over their use of fur. So I love this piece because it reminds people that Canada Goose jackets are indeed made with the fur of dead coyotes who've been trapped or snared to death death and suffered significantly during that process. And I'm actually quoted in this piece because they looked at this uh, complaint that we filed a couple years ago against Canada Goose with the Competition Bureau of Canada, claiming that Canada Goose is actually misleading people when it tries to pretend that its use of fur is somehow humane. They use all this flowery language on their website to describe how they're deeply committed to the humane treatment of animals and would never condone any willful or intentional cruelty to coyotes or to um, geese, because of course they also use geese down in their jackets. So I was glad to see this piece. It got a lot of reaction. One thing that we brought out in that complaint against Canada Goose is what the trapping practices actually are. So coyotes are killed both by traps, leg hold traps, where they are captured with a metal clamp around their paws. They are held there for a period of time until the trapper returns to kill them. Uh, that's typically done by bludgeoning them, perhaps shooting them, but usually they prefer not to to preserve the pelt. Sometimes strangling them. I've seen videos on YouTube where trappers step on the necks of coyotes or on their lungs to smother them and uh, suffocate them to death, essentially. They are also killed by snares. Snares are incredibly cruel devices. There's uh, just just no words really to describe the suffering that they cause, but snares are thin wire nooses that constrict around the necks of coyotes. They take minutes to kill. They take a very long time, Peter. Uh, they take so long that they would not be uh, approved for use in a slaughterhouse, for instance, under humane, so-called humane slaughter standards, uh, which require that animals be rendered unconscious very quickly before they be killed. 
Um, snares don't render animals unconscious quickly at all. It takes several minutes, and they may perhaps suffer for a lot of time uh, beyond that before they actually die. So there's no way that Canada Goose can say that those practices match up with what consumers think of when they hear the word humane. But there is one way they can argue that it's humane. Camille, which we've talked about on this show before, um, their definition of humane means that, at least theoretically, the trappers who are doing this are doing it within the legal framework, as poor as that legal framework is, that, uh, you know, is adhered to in whatever jurisdiction that's taking place. And that is the uh, claim, which has been explored many times on this podcast, that essentially not cruel means legal. We've heard this before. Farmers and various other producers use the exact same uh, justification. So Canada Goose is saying, well, as long as these uh, fur trappers that we're engaging are regulated in the sense that they are doing this under some sort of framework, whatever that means, then we can say that it's not cruel because humane, by definition, has a sociological component that involves the balancing in the need to get these tails on your jackets. Yeah, so that's the argument that they would probably try to in court if they ever have to do so. Um, I don't like it because I think that what matters for consumer protection legislation is what perception words create in the minds of a consumer and how that matches up with what they believe the case should be. But I hope this issue will be tested at some point. One day. It's been uh, hard to get in, but I'm glad to see there's so much pressure going on from uh, various uh, media outlets and groups. And as a funny follow-up to this story, iPolitics had a piece about how much the federal government has recently spent on Canada Goose Jackets. And if you're curious to know how much that is, it's $45,000 at least. That's what uh, iPolitics was able to figure out through public records requests. But there were lots of agencies who just didn't really have the records in a convenient format and couldn't really say. So it could be, it could be more. But the government's buying these luxury outerwear parkas for upwards of $1,000 a piece. So between 2015 and 2016, uh, they were bought mostly for government employees. But the Department of Finance bought 20 vests to give to the head of a delegation at the G7 finance meeting in Whistler. Uh, Public Prosecution Service of Canada, interestingly, has the highest Canada Goose expenditures. They've bought... 19 parkas, 12 pants, and three sets of overalls for $17,500, which they give out to employees in regional offices in the north. Uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, which is a terrible department, so incompetent. <laughs> <laughs> they paid almost $10,000 for Canada Goose project, uh, products for protective clothing. Public Health Agency bought seven parkas for just under seven grand. Parks Canada has purchased some. It all is... Uh, really unpleasant to think of our tax dollars subsidizing this company. Uh, The Ontario government's been criticized before for spending over $54,000 on Canada Goose Parkas for staff before as well. It would be nice to see some humane purchasing policies at all levels of government. Uh, One kind of interesting addendum to this is that the wife of the Prime Minister's principal secretary sits on the board of Canada Goose. So this company has a lot of juice with the Prime Minister's office. You mean former Principal Secretary, do you not, Camille? I do. (laughs) I do. As of today. As of today. We're recording this on Monday, February 18th, and uh, Jerry Butts, who was the Prime Minister's Principal Secretary, just resigned in the Jody Wilson-Raybould affair. So very interesting. Wow. It all comes back to Canada Goose, doesn't it, Camille? Uh, It must have been their fault in some way. I mean, I would like to think it is. 
What else do we got, Camille? Very, very busy in the news. Yeah. Oh boy. So One of my another. I, I like to get. I think this is a day when we can be mad at the government, Peter, because mm. we've got another story here. A vegan cheese company has been ordered by the Canadian Food Inspection Agency to stop using the word cheese on its products. This stuff just drives me crazy. Yeah. It, it just absolutely drives me crazy. It's maddening. It's, it comes up all the time. Um, you know, let's fill in on the story. But, I mean, it, it, it just drives me crazy. So Blue Heron is a small vegan cheese shop in Vancouver. I've heard about Blue Heron, still haven't been able to get their products because they're so popular and so in demand. And they've been told by the CFIA that they have to stop using the word cheese to market their products. Apparently there was a complaint to somebody at the CFIA about products being labeled as cheese when they are allegedly not. Do you think it might have been the dairy industry that complained, Peter? Who knows, Camille? It's a mystery. It's a I mystery. Mean, it's a mystery. And why why, why would the dairy industry have an interest in doing this, Camille? There's oh, just no motive. I can't imagine they're threatened by the fact that alternative milks now take up 10% of the marketplace. You know, I just, this stuff absolutely drives me crazy. It's so funny that when you look at all these milk cartons and cheese products, and we're going to call them milk, and we're going to call them cheese, CFIA, Come after I'm us. here. I'm here in Toronto. Come, Come get me us. anytime. Um, it's just so ludicrous that when you do all this, you know, you actually look at it carefully, and I noticed when I look carefully, Camille, that it is actually soy-flavored beverage. Yeah. Right? And it is actually... What is it? I don't even. I'm just about to say it's slices of what? What do they call them? Um, sometimes they call okay, like vegan cheese slices. Yeah. One company calls them American slices. For and, instance. Oh, we just Camille and I just enjoyed a delicious bowl. Are you ready, everybody? We're gonna play guess the product here on Pawn Order today. Camille and I enjoyed a bowl of. Frozen dessert, wasn't it, Camille? It was it was, was chocolate-flavored frozen dessert. You guess what it was. And after that, I had my lunch with some sliced... What? I don't even know what it is. Anyway, all this stuff is just nonsense. And what drives me crazy about it is just total nonsense. You're essentially trying to trademark or, or copyright particular words which are not related to any product. I don't care if, God, I don't even know who they are anymore, Natrell or Briars wants to call their product whatever. But the idea that you cannot qualify it is, is so nonsensical. And the reason it's nonsensical, one of the many reasons, is because it purports the idea that the law is an ass. And the law is an ass when the law fails to reflect what everybody is doing regardless of this. If you go anywhere, I'm waiting for them to go after Starbucks and everybody else who every freaking restaurant in the country that I'm aware of says alternative milks are available because that's what we call them. I don't call it milk. I call it soy milk. It's qualified. Yeah. And if you look at things like canned coconut milk, that actually says coconut milk. <gasps> coconut milk. And How do they get away with that? I think it's just because it's, it's been entrenched it's been for entrenched. so long. Yeah, exactly. That's a very well accepted I think we need thing. to go after that, Camille. I'm going to do a complaint tomorrow to the CFIA saying that they need to get after the coconut industry to get that coconut out of the milk because milk, according, that's good. Wait, Camille. I'm reading now from the Globe Mail. Milk comes from the normal lacteal secretions obtained from the mammary glands of animals. So coconuts, you are out of luck. You can't call it coconut milk because it's just so stupid. Like all of this is just so utterly ludicrous. It drives me crazy. I have no problem with saying that any cheese uh, that is, is a vegan cheese should be modified as vegan cheese. And I say that because, frankly, I don't want to eat the 
cheese. I want to eat the vegan cheese. So this is pure self-interest. Totally. Please label it properly, ladies and gentlemen. No, but wait, I mean, a minute ago, we're talking about Canada Goose and consumer deception. That's oh. essentially the issue here is whether consumers are deceived or confused by these labels. And I would argue very strongly that they're not. The vast majority of people who seek out these products are doing so exactly because they don't have milk in them. They're doing so because they want to purchase dairy-free products. And I, I really don't think that you can legitimately make this case. And when you say the law is an ass, I totally agree with you. Well, I don't know if you can or can't make this case. I don't want to comment on that because I haven't done enough research on this one way or another. And for all I know, the law is so ridiculously structured that it allows you to make this case, right? So I don't, I'm not commenting on that. But I will say that if the law does allow you to make this case, the law is an ass. And the law literally needs to be amended to reflect the way in which people are living. Like, it is just so utterly critical to actually reflect. Like, the idea that CFIA is going around knocking all these products just is is, is literally insane. And I actually think it bothers me. Like, I, I mean... That bothers me. I don't really care if I'm drinking soy favorite beverage or whatever. But the idea that we cannot market these products in this way when that is actually what they are just makes it more difficult for consumers to actually get what they're trying to buy. I don't know what a frozen dessert is, Camille. I really don't know. I don't know if that frozen dessert is made out of ice, which I don't actually enjoy, or a, a soy favored or coconut milk type of product. Like, just tell me what it is so I can buy it. Please, Camille, can we scroll down a bit? We are actually looking at the same screen because I just absolutely have to read that what I can tell you, Camille, is that you can keep scrolling. Um, while we are very upset about this, I can tell you who isn't upset about this, and the answer to that is our friends. And let me tell you about them. Guess who, Camille? It's been pretty clearly put forward that the dairy farmers of Canada say it sees no need for change or review. The standards of identity, this is a direct quote from Lucy Boyo, Director of Communications at Dairy Farmers, our friends at the Dairy Farmers of Canada. The standards of identity for dairy products have served Canadians well for many decades and should continue to be respected. I would say those many decades included times when we did not have alternative forms of milk, Lucy Boyo, and we did not have alternative forms of cheese, Lucy Boyo, or ice cream for that matter. And by the way, that Haagen-Dazs um, non-dairy ice cream yeah. is freaking very good. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. Anyway, I think it's fair to say that those existing rules have served the dairy farmers very well. But they're obviously <laughs> feeling the pressure. They're losing their grip on supply management. Uh, 10% of the market share for, for milk products now goes to alternative milk products that aren't from animals. And that's only increasing. So and, they and have this huge sense of entitlement. They think that they own the word cheese. They think they own the word milk. They don't. And this is only going to become a bigger area in the future. And by the way, I should point out a uh, shout out to our uh, friend, Anna, Anna Pippas, friend and colleague, Anna Pippas, who uh, oh, who uh, is, is Animal Justice's uh, director of farm... Farmed Animal Advocacy and specializes in plant-based food law and policy, who works extensively on these issues. Thank you so much. Much. I'm absolutely terrible with these sorts of things. But Anna Anna did some um, wonderful stuff, and she pointed out quite cleverly and quite correctly, you know, better at this stuff than I am, saying, and here's a, a, a tweet quote from Anna Pippas, the word cheese has its roots in ancient words referring to the process of souring or fermenting foods. Like, that's the origin of the word, not, as Lucy Boyeau points out, the, the lactating of mammals. Um, in the 21st century, we are fermenting nuts, seeds, and legumes to make, guess what, 
dairy-free cheese. So from now on, on this podcast, the Paw and Order podcast is taking a stand. We will continue to refer to all these things, Camille, in their rightful words. We are banning the words frozen dessert, soy-based beverage, <laughs> and whatever is used for cheese <laughs> in this world. Yeah, that's right. CFI, if you got a problem, you know where to find us. Yeah, Bring it on. Gosh darn it. We are, you can come after us anytime. This story really, as you can tell, just gets me boiling. I just, I, I've hated this since the day it takes place. It makes no sense. I am waiting, Camille, for the moment that the Beyond Meat burger is told that, you know, the word burger has a special connotation with, with hamburger, which was a meat-based product, and therefore you've got to start telling it the Beyond Meat uh, patty, patty. <laughs> yeah. vegetable yeah. patty. Yes, the 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 plant pa- patty. Well, I mean, the question is whether patty. Ha- this just gets to stu- to levels of stupidity that I fail to tolerate. Yeah, it's just like let people call foods what they are. This could become a hobby horse for us, Camille. <laughs> I'm Could hoping, be. I'm hoping. Anyway, stay tuned. Like, I would not be surprised to see somebody challenge this interpretation of the regulations and this action by the CFAA on the basis of freedom of expression. That seems totally legitimate. There's lots of other stuff still to come. God, I have let's no hope doubt. so. All right. Next piece. Yes. There's an op-ed in the Edmonton Journal by the Edmonton Humane Society board chair, which I really enjoyed because they explain in a little bit more detail to the public why they decided to pull out of doing law enforcement in Edmonton. Yeah, and we, we this is a story we've talked about at length, so we're not going to rehash uh, all the aspects of the story. Um, the idea that the Edmonton Humane Society has pulled out. What we know since this story was discussed is that we now know that for the moment at least the city of Edmonton is going to take on the animal protection enforcement. I can't say I'm necessarily thrilled by that idea. I would like to see um, once in a while that when a problem arises with animals we decide on long term rather than ad hoc solutions but I'm, I'm guessing that could be too much to ask for. But I certainly think that um, the op-ed itself was very powerful Powerful. It makes the statement that this is uh, an expensive situation. Uh, it is a situation when uh, the, the Humane Society has recognized that they are not a police agency. They are not uh, able to uh, recognize and um, um, treat their staff with the protections required, especially at the cost levels that they can afford them, to make sure their staff are safe. And they've recognized that animal uh, cruelty is a specialized area that needs specialized officers. Yeah, I think it's really brave of them to do this. They say in this op-ed, we are not police, we are not experts in law. They acknowledge they're not an enforcement agency and speak to what their strengths are, Uh, which if you go back to the name of the um, organizations that are charged with doing this work, they're SPCAs, Societies for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the key word being prevention, which the author of this piece points out. And there's a desire to move back toward preventing cruelty through advocacy and education. If they're conducting enforcement, the damage has already been done. And I can really appreciate the desire to prevent something before it occurs rather than trying to clean up the mess after by doing law enforcement, which is is not something that comes naturally to them because they're not enforcement agencies. So I thought it was brave of them. I I thought it was too because they received a fair bit of critique, obviously. The gut reaction and the sort of the gunshot response is, you know, this is bad. You're uh, neglecting your duty. And, of course, one of my responses, why the hell is it their duty? Like, why why, why is it the, why is it the SPCA's duty or the Humane Society's duty any more than it is mine? As a private like, charity. Exactly. Like, do whatever, you, do whatever you want. Yeah. It's time for the government to <coughs> clean up this area. Okay, well, that's it for the news. And 
We're going to move into our main segment now. We are about to move into our main segment. All right, and we're back with our main segment. And while this all sounds pretty seamless... We actually took a little dinner break. <laughs> we were kind of hungry, so we went to Virtuous Pie in Toronto for dinner and had a couple pizzas. That was the first time this has ever happened. We did the first segment, and we're like, we're really hungry, so <laughs> we're going to jet out and get some pizza. And the pretty hilarious thing about it is we just finished all that vegan cheese discussion about what milk is, and I swear to God, on the way back, there's this billboard. Oh. It was a bus shelter ad. A bus shelter ad. Many of you have probably seen them, but the dairy farmers of Canada are back with this aggressive new ad campaign because they have a ton of money to spend on them. And it said, Peter, so there's a photo of a farmer. Yeah, f- uh, I love that how they have the photo of the farmer rather than the cow. But anyway, yeah, yeah. and you know it's a farmer because he's wearing a hat and, and a funny overalls. shirt. Yeah, overalls. exactly. So you know it's a farmer. And what did it say? It's, it's real, real milk. Real milk is yeah. from cows. Or it's nuts. Everything else is nuts. Everything else is nuts. Yeah. So they're yeah. they're targeting vegan yeah, yeah. milk. Yeah. Plant milk. I mean, milk. we could sit here and dissect it. We dissected it half of the way home in the car. But honestly, it's just a, it's it's so it's kind of ridiculous. Like it's again, you're defining a, a word and you're saying what it means, and then you're saying anything else is stupid. I I don't even know exactly what that means, but clearly the dairy industry. I mean, on a certain level, Camille, I have to admit that I find it kind of encouraging that the dairy industry feels the need that it has to not only try and sell its product, which it's done for years, right? I mean, various real milk, get milk, all that stuff, but like, you know, defend itself against other more interesting products. They're on the defense and we're on the offense right now. May or may not be be milk, Camille, (laughs) depending on how the CFIA feels about it. All right, let's get into our main topic, which has sadly nothing to do with milk, dairy, or overalls. Nothing at all. We're going to talk about dog breeding Dog breeding is our big topic of the day. We have wanted to get to this for a long time. Yeah, I think we actually first talked about doing this about a year ago, and then we got sidetracked by other issues, but we're finally bringing it back. There's a lot of interesting legal issues that come up with dogs, and we could have you know a year's worth of episode yes. on that. We're going to focus on dog breeding in terms of you know looking at the legal framework that surrounds dog breeding, and there are a lot of people who are concerned. I mean, we've all heard about uh, the dreaded puppy mills, and we understand the problems that exist with dogs, and we're going to pull this all out of the closet. Closet, Camille, and really take it apart and figure out what is going on in the law concerning dog breeding. That's that's right. So, you know, I, I guess a good place to start, Peter, the biggest thing that listeners need to know is that dog breeding is largely unregulated in this what country. What Camille can't be, can't be, Camille. Oh. Dog breeders, oh, they got standards, they got stuff going on. No? No. Okay. No, no, no. They, they no, no. I mean, just with, as with all, pretty much all areas of animal use, are characterized by a lack of regulation and oversight by the government, and dog breeding is, is really no exception. So I mean, it, it is pretty amazing, if you think about it for just a moment. We're sitting here and we're talking about a major source, relatively major source of commerce where animals are concerned, and one that my guess is many of our listeners at some point in their life have engaged in, in the sense of buying a dog from a dog breeder or some sort of dog seller. And it is amazing when you go back and you think at it and you really break it down and look at it 
you'd find that there's very little legal regulation. Now, maybe we should say, Camille, and this is something that we probably have to do every time we talk about any animal issue. Um, certainly anytime we talk about farming and the first thing out of our mouth is we sort of say, well, there's no law and there's no regulation. And, and we have to just like walk that back a second and, and, and point out as a reminder that it is true that everybody who breeds dogs is 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 addressed in a general way, both by the standards in the criminal code, which we've talked about before, and of course the uh, standards of 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 uh, the obligations that are imposed upon all animal owners under the provincial animal protection act, whatever province or territory that you're in. Yeah, and that's very important to keep in mind. There are those general protections for animals that exist at both levels. Uh, sometimes there is maybe municipal ones as well, depending on where you live. Uh, so that's important to keep in mind. But when we say that dog breeding is unregulated, what we're and it's, it's largely unregulated, it's not completely unregulated, what we're referring to is any sort of comprehensive oversight system that involves licensing, registration, specific standards that breeders must adhere to, uh, publicly available inspection reports done by government agencies. So all of those hallmarks of a regulatory regime are what we're missing. And, and we should probably also stress when we're talking about these two things, we should we should mention why that's so important. And, and it's one thing, we've talked about this in the farming context, and frankly, it's not much different in the dog breeding context when you say that, yes, there is a general law. So for for example, there's a federal anti-cruelty law. The problem with a federal anti-cruelty law when it comes to specific contexts like this is that it's very difficult to apply the broad federal cruelty law when it's not really designed to deal with dog breeders. It's designed to deal with the guy who takes a bat to his dog. So as a result, it is theoretically possible, and I would I believe it's true that in a worst case scenario of a dog breeding facility, if you walked into a dog breeding facility and found the second coming of the apocalypse, I, I use that term a lot, I call them apocalypse farms or apocalypse breeding facilities, it is true that you could charge them under the criminal code. That's right, and I believe there have been neglect prosecutions yep. under the criminal code for puppy mills, for instance. Yeah, and certainly the same is true with the provincial standards, right? The general oh, laws on distress and the general laws about making sure your animals have enough water and shelter. If you go to a terrible facility, um, there is no question that you can charge that facility under the the distress laws. The, the point I'm trying to make is that the more industrialized these things are, the more difficult it is as a general rule to start going in and, and using these things, except in the very worst case scenarios. The whole point of regulation is not simply to catch the absolute worst of the worst of the worst, but have a clear inspection and regulatory and oversight regime to look at something. Yeah, and the idea is to pre prevent the worst of the worst, make sure it doesn't get to that point where the criminal law or penal provisions have to actually kick in. And one of the uh, exam another example given in place, although it's a terrible example because unfortunately the regulatory oversight regime doesn't really work. But nonetheless, just get the idea. Um, we have commonly said on this example on this uh, podcast before that there's a difference between transport of farm animals and um, and keeping of farm animals. And the reason is because the federal government does have very poor but nonetheless they do have transport regulations and the difference between that is 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 actually quite significant in the sense that you regularly have oversight you have inspectors who are trying to apply the regulations 
again, the regulations are, I don't want to, I don't want to get sound too excited about them, but that is a comparison to you are applying a transport standard that says, for example, you must keep animals in this situation or that, and that is very different from then trying to go into a farm where you're not dealing with transport and oversee the general distress provisions of the code, which are just, you can't keep animals in distress subject to whatever exception actually exists. It's just a completely different form of oversight. Yeah, that's right. So let's get into what regulations do exist, because when we say that it's almost completely unregulated in Canada, to qualify that, we have to point out that a couple provinces have tried to take some steps. That is correct. I believe the first one was Manitoba. So Manitoba requires that kennels, pet stores, and pet breeding premises be licensed if they have uh, more than four female breeding dogs or cats. Um, or more than 14 animals if it's another species. So, you know, that's that's somewhat interesting to me because I think the number four already sets up a situation where you can quite, have quite a few babies being born, quite a few dogs being born, and, um, uh, you know, essentially a lack of oversight pertaining to that situation. Uh, but they do appear to be attempting to address larger situations. But but it's also interesting, and I don't want to go too far forward, but I'll just like throw out as a foreshadowing of what we're about to talk about in a little bit, that when you talk about these licensing applications and what Manitoba's doing, and Manitoba, quite frankly, is one of the better ones in terms of the law on the page, um, it's interesting to note that, just keep in mind, that the Manitoba regulation is certainly not designed to I don't know, for example, keep an eye on breeders and see that we don't have too many breeders or see that we're not producing too many animals. It's, it's, it's a very strict restriction that is essentially designed to ensure that breeders don't get too large and turn into puppy mills. There's really not much more to it than that. You're trying to keep these to a small level of operation and avoid them from treating the animals in a particularly bad way by having some control over the nature of the kennel or the cattery but that's really all it is. It's not like, you know, it's not a good idea or we should restrict the numbers that are bred or we're going to look at the way they're sold or any of that stuff. It's just a matter of it's more it's more ensuring that however you decide to get into breeding, you do it in a way that has some humane elements to it. Yeah, there, there's no policy position taken by any government that says we shouldn't be breeding animals. Breeders should back off and not breed as many. Um, it's really, as you say, Peter, I think geared more at just preventing the puppy mill situation rather than preventing more animals from being born. Uh, interestingly about Manitoba, there doesn't appear to be any sort of inspection requirement at the front end for obtaining a license. It's really unclear to me how much uh, compliance and enforcement is actually done with respect to these. That might be an interesting thing for some law students to take on if anybody uh, <laughs> wants to file some freedom of information requests. I guess I guess we should always, this fits into our general framework of this show. Keep in mind that whenever we're talking about the problems with animal law and God, by now, if you're listening to this show, you know there are lots of problems. There's problems at every end. There's the problem in the content of the law, the extent to which the law covers what you want it to cover, and then eventually get down the law and realize that, you know, even despite that crappy law, there's no enforcement of the crappy law that actually exists. So <laughs> there's just, there are, as we call it, the animal law levels of losing, Camille, because that's really what we have. Pretty much. Not, not quite winning yet. <laughs> And let's talk about two more provinces. So Quebec also has some sort of permitting requirement. Uh, the number is quite a lot higher. So a person needs a, a permit to own more than 15 cats or dogs. 
And breeders aren't supposed to sell animals who aren't socialized, who are too young to feed and drink on their own, or injured, ill, or have congenital defects, which is interesting. Uh, the per so, so they're making more of an attempt to get into the conditions under which animals are bred. Um, I should say Manitoba does have some provisions there as well that affect that. They adopt certain codes produced by the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association for breeding, so there are standards in there. By the way, I just think it's interesting. Again, just the, the wording. We can get into this all day, and, and let me stress: I'm, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this in the English version. But it's interesting that the permit holders must not sell animals who are not socialized, too young to feed or drink on their own, injured, ill, or have congenital defects. And that that sounds actually good. That actually looks at the quality of the animal a minute. But just to be clear. It says you can't sell those animals. It doesn't certainly say that you should, for example, what I would like to see, things like you should not breed in a way that's likely to produce those animals because you're still, you're still looking at a... a um, you're looking at a money game, and we're now I am sort of jumping ahead, eh? Camille, to yeah. a, a future issue. Yeah, and we'll get to that in a minute. But just one other thing I wanted to point out about permits in Quebec is that permits are valid for 12 years. 12 years? 12 years. Cool. I mean, that's the life of most animals, right? Most cats and dogs. It's, it's a very, very long time. And, uh, yeah, and the number, of course, in the first place, more than 15 cats or dogs. I mean, 15 dogs in a breeding facility, that to me is already a puppy mill. That's a lot. It's a family farm. <laughs> sure. And then we'll move to... family just, facility. And just quickly, British Columbia is working on something. So uh, three years ago, February 2016, then-Premier Christy Clark announced plans to regulate and license cat and dog breeders in BC. And they also said that they would incorporate the CVMA's codes of practice. So again, we're seeing a private organization here setting what's eventually going to be a legal standard. And they would have the BC SPCA involved in proactive inspections, incorporating that into the licensing process. So the government introduced these amendments, and they got royal assent about two years ago. But the government's still working on uh, the regulations that accompany this new provision. So still waiting on that. Nothing has happened yet in BC, but apparently that is to come. Okay, so that's good, Camille. Well, we're moving right along across the country. We got Manitoba, we got Quebec, we got BC. Let's hear about the other provinces. What cool laws do they all have in place? <laughs> and can we just insert the sound of crickets? At oh this right, point? crickets. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. Well, wait a minute. Oh yeah, nothing. Okay. Well, uh, no, that nothing there too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, nothing. Fantastic. No legislation specific to breeders, just the general prohibitions that we already talked about. Fantastic. So, so, so where in your, does that leave us? It, it, I'm just glad to know, Camille, that it's like it, we're both in the same boat here. Usually we just, you know, complain about Alberta, but good to know Alberta and Ontario for this particular issue, you know, have, 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 have set themselves up at an equal level of crapitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bravo, Ontario. Congratulations Bravo, Alberta. to us. Bravo, Hooray. <laughs> Good work. Yeah, it's it's just, it's amazing how little has been done to take on an issue that actually, what's amazing is, regardless of what side of the spectrum you're on, and I sh it, sh it probably won't shock any listener to know, I am not into dog breeding facilities in any sense of the word. I think they're completely nonsensical in a society where we have too many dogs at the moment. But, you know, some of you out there probably love your Labradoodles and whatever other custom-made dog you want to have. So whatever, let's assume for the moment you're we're equivalent on that and you want to have your custom-made dog. It is nonetheless astonishing to me that both of us, those of you out there who love your Labradoodle and those who don't, cannot get on the same page 
to try and save the animals who are in these facilities and ensure that we get the best Labradoodles possible for those of you who want them and, you know, try and clamp down on avoiding the worst Labradoodles for those of you who don't. Like, it's amazing that we're all not together saying, maybe it's a good idea for breeders to be regulated and licensed instead of every guy and, you know, who's managing to put a couple of these animals together can just do it any way they want. It's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, it really is amazing. So, so let's talk about some of those problems that do emerge with this with this breeding system. Uh, we've already touched on puppy mills. I think that's the obvious one. When there's nobody watching, the temptation is to produce on a mass scale, uh, essentially factory farmed cats and dogs. Well, especially because the economic incentive to do so is very large. Extremely large. Oh my People God, are they're willing very to cheap. pay thousands Correct. of dollars for puppies of a designer breed, right? Like it's a it's big business. And, and the costs, like over time, the, the thing is, animals do have reasonably sized litters. So again, like let's just it just just put it in a simple way, right? Let's assume we were in a situation where we actually cared for all the animals, and we want to have the best conditions possible to ensure that these are. And then, let's just assume this is a market. So let's take my view out of the equation. Let's assume Camille and I, Camille. For the sake of the next 15 minutes, let's assume we both love breeding Labradoodles, okay? Sure. Everybody should have a Labradoodle. We are all into Labradoodles. I've just chosen Labradoodle because, A, I I love saying Labradoodle, and, B, I actually think it's a stupid dog, but that's just... (laughs) We are going to get some hate mail. Big trouble. We're in big trouble. No, it's not a stupid dog. My friend has a Labradoodle. It's fine. Okay, so we for the next 10 minutes, Camille, you and I both love Labradoodles. Fair? Sure. Okay, great. So we love Labradoodles. So now my question is this. If we were in a situation, we love Labradoodles, all you dog lovers out there who want to buy one, the the problem is this. Wouldn't we want to actually ensure that the best possible Labradoodles are coming out and that we're trying to avoid killing Labradoodles or having sick dogs or sick puppies or making sure that the way we're breeding is actually producing the best animals possible. I don't know. If I was an animal lover or, God forbid, a dog lover who wants to have a Labradoodle, we, we would do our best to make sure that that happens. And, and, and right now, like, that's not what we do at all. No, it's not. It's not even close. It's not even close. We have a system where there's an incentive to produce as many animals as possibly as cheaply as possible. And, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of have to question your premise. If, if I guess if people really did care about the well-being of Labradoodles, that would be one thing. But I sort of suspect there is an economic incentive there that if somebody can mass produce Labradoodles more cheaply than a smaller scale breeder, that people are going to go for that. Well, well that's, that's exactly my point. And people are like, you know, well, why would breeders, you know, want to lose animal like we get these stupid arguments with the farmers too the same arguments essentially like no no farmers care about their property because their property is valuable and why would they want loss right like if you think about it that is the economic theory or the the theory of economic waste and the idea that when we criticize farmers i'm just using farmers but it's the same with labradoodle breeders who i for the purposes of this example for the purpose of this example i'm willing to tolerate and love right but but the idea is that why would they want to kill their own animal like, why would they treat them badly? It doesn't make sense. It's not in the economic interest of somebody who's breeding animals to kill the animal. And the reason is, if you examine a little further, whether it's a Labradoodle, a chicken, or a cow, if you can produce 15 and you're willing to lose three or have three get sick or whatever, it's better than small producing four, let's say. I mean, I realize I'm making up the numbers. Sure. But you get the idea. You can make more money that way if you're a Labrador, Labradoodle breeder. 
Yeah, the loss just gets factored into the equation. And that's where I'm, that's where I'm saying that there is just no real thinking about the long-term economic value. And the truth of the matter is, for these labradoodle breeders, whoever the hell they are, there's no question that some of them don't. I'm not, I'm not trying to tar every labradoodle owner with the same brush because I don't think that's fair or even accurate. But, but, the, but at the end of the day, there are lots that just have no economic incentive to do so. To be quite frank, I know some people who breed, and I know some people who breed various animals. Animals, and honestly, like, that's the way they approach it. This is an economic exercise. Yeah, 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 easily. Easily. So we referenced a couple times animals getting sick and dying. Why don't we talk a little bit about why that happens? And we'll move away from the labradoodles because I don't know that much about them as a breed, to Neither be honest. Do I. I don't even pay attention to dog breeds. I don't like asking people what kind of breed their dog is because no. I think the best breed is rescue, and I don't want to encourage people to think that they should be buying dogs of a certain breed or that those are cool dogs to have. And and for this purpose, now we have to shift gears a little bit and say something else. Like, okay, for now, for the next 10 minutes, we are prepared to leave aside the bad puppy mill breeders. So now I don't want to talk about them anymore. Sure, we, we just we've talk, done that. Yeah, we've done that. And we've said, Economic okay. Economic incentives. Exactly. So let's leave those people out. Let's talk about people who are more small nature breeder and they want to breed some animals and they're not treating, they, they, they have nice beds and they have nice cages and they really do, to whatever extent, respect the animals or whatever you want to call it. Sure. Okay, so let's move on from that. All right, so we'll assume that there's people out there who are like that. A lot of dog breeds don't do very well uh, because they've been bred into taking on a very unnatural form with essentially birth defects that cause them a lot of pain and suffering. So, you know, we could, we could give quite a few examples of um, dogs where the breed standards promulgated by the Kennel Club uh, and these sort of pedigree associations that oversee dog breeds and promote dog breeds, the breed standards that they promote are actually inherently painful to those dogs. So what are, what are a few examples, Peter? Oh my God, there's so many. Um, but before I forget, and I'm trying to do it as I, I, uh, as I, um, do this, but there's just an incredible, there's an incredible video that I show in my class every year from the UK where they did an investigation into these uh, dog breeding standards, and we'll try to put a link up in the show notes. It's very tough to watch, I should warn you, but essentially it was all about how dog breed standards are eventually causing the death of tons of dogs. I mean, the truth of the matter is, you can go look this stuff up online. It was a very detailed investigation of the way in which the consistent inbreeding of dogs is causing deformities in the dogs that are causing them to die. And unfortunately, many of these dogs are the favored types of dogs people like. So if you've ever wondered when you look at a pug, why that pug's face looks totally smashed in and is really a, um, really in its own way, I, I think pugs are kind of sweet looking dogs in their own right and whatever. But the truth of the matter is the problem with the pugs is that their brains are no longer able to fit into their skull and they have breathing problems. And there are a lot of these animals that have constant problems. And, and, and there's, there's a million reasons for this, but the main one is the inability to continue to inbreed these animals. You are essentially, and let me, again, I, I feel like there's so many issues and I don't want to forget a couple of things, but even here, we can distinguish between the good and the bad dog breeders. Like the good ones, to me, are good, and I say good with, you know, quotation marks, but the good ones are ones who actually care about this to a certain extent and try to breed as widely as possible. That doesn't 
ignore the problem or 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 eradicate it it just minimizes it right because you, eventually you're still dealing with a diminished stock of animals and then there are the ones who don't care at all and they're both obviously very problematic for the breed yeah yeah so there's the gene pool issues and taking dogs from a very very small gene pool which causes them genetic defects uh, there's the fact that some standards just the way the dogs are supposed to look are inherently painful to them um and then I, I think we have to touch on this idea of, of purebred, purebredness in the first place and what that actually means. So the word purebred implies is that there's some sort of ancient line of dogs and that if you have dogs of this, of this line and the moms from the line and the dads of the line, you're going to get pure dogs of some variety. When in reality, these breed standards are just artificial constructs made up by kennel clubs and other breeding associations. And if you look over the years at how breed standards have evolved, it's clear that they just change their minds and are like, oh yeah, now we want a shorter tail for this dog. Now we want a longer tail. Now we want a shorter snout and shorter legs. Like there's nothing inherent um, or pure about those standards. But, but it's amazing how how much they have taken over the public consciousness, like the breed standards. And and to be fair, I, I should say, like, for a lot of people, it's a mixture of people who buy dogs, but a lot of people don't care as much about the breed standards for how the dog looks, but they care as much about the temperament and the way in which the dog behaves. And there is you know, a, some general tendencies of the breed. That's the way breeds are. Some breeds are hounds. Some breeds are fetchers, like retrievers. There, there are different breed. There are some breeds that are better with kids than others, right? Again, not not perfect every time, but generally uh, generalist tendencies. And as a result, what you have is this desire to control. It's some desire to put this breed together in a way that makes sense for the owner. And I think all of these things are troubling when you start to realize that, yeah, our desire for these sorts of things are essentially causing us to breed animals that are often very sick and often likely to die. But luckily, Camille, there's a lot of law that oversees this and ensures that when breeders make these choices, they are able, they are, they are able or forced to do so in a way with the best interests of the newborn animal in mind, correct? <laughs> It's Sarcasm hilarious to even alert. say it. Like, it's hilarious to say it. Like, we can't, it's so ridiculous. It has bothered me for years. I've been looking at this as a matter of law. Like, I want everybody to recognize this. I want you to think about this. I just think very carefully. I'm a breeder, okay? I am going to breed together these two animals, and I'm no dummy. I know everything there is to know about breed standards, and I've even studied, and I'm aware of the fact that if you breed these animals together, there is a history of deformity, and I'm going to do it anyway. Okay? Sure. It, it, yeah. The animal is then born, and that animal has a brain defect, and that animal lives for a while and is in constant, constant pain before eventually it's put down. Don't believe that can happen? Go look online to all these investigations involving pedigree dogs. Now, my question to you, how is that non-animal cruelty? How is it non-animal cruelty for a breeder to knowingly breed an animal in a situation in which there is a serious or significant risk that that animal's prodigy is going to be harmed just from being born? Like, it seems to me there's got to be something we can do about these sorts of situations. Yeah, that would be a fun prosecution if we could ever convince anybody to take it. But Yeah, that's the problem. No one will take it. But I, I've been troubled by dog breeders ever since I watched this stuff um, in the UK, some of the investigations they did into numerous, numerous breeds that are problematic for animals. And we'll post some links to that. But uh, to, to end on a bit of an encouraging note, I oh, think let's there's a... do that. 
I think there's a couple developments that are a little happier. One of those is that we're seeing now a lot of municipalities banning the sale of pets in stores, specifically cats, dogs, and rabbits, typically. Uh, this is often motivated by exposure to the horrors of puppy mills, exposure to the horrors of, of animal breeding of all sorts, and not wanting to play a part in that. So the idea being that if you stop selling dogs in stores, most of those come from puppy mills or from larger scale breeders, uh, that people will instead adopt dogs. And usually those municipalities encourage people to adopt dogs through those stores and set up a new system where adoption agencies partner with the pet shops. I so couldn't agree more thing. that any time that you, you challenge or make it more difficult to actually get the animals, that's good. Because I think you're right that in pet stores, the problem is the pet stores get the animals from the easiest source. It's not as if we have some sort of tracking or, God forbid, oversight requirement as to how those animals are sourced. We don't do that. And, and the problem that we face, Camille, this is what bothers me so much, is that many of the animals that you see are, of course, the healthy animals. It's the unhealthy animals you don't see. Though, from what I can tell, if you look, you know, Google this online, you'll see a lot of those animals actually end up quite unhealthy. They just don't look unhealthy at the, the day you pick them up. Yeah, yeah. And, and interestingly, not, not in Canada yet, but in the States, uh, there has been... A, litigation, and B, some legislation around the idea of defective dogs being sold to people and some consumer remedies that accompany those. I don't think that's the right response. I think you need to cut the problem off at the source by restricting breeding and regulating breeding, but it's interesting that some people are, are onto that. So it's encouraging that municipalities are bringing in these bans. Um, in the states, some entire states have gone so far as to do this now. California just banned pet sales in stores. We have yet to see a Canadian province go that far, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was on the horizon. So that's, uh, that's one positive point. And I would say the other thing kind of dovetails with this, and that's the rise in rescue and adoption. Uh, we've seen millennials especially really taking up rescuing animals as a social cause. It's become something very positive, something very socially desirable to do and i think that's great marketing for dogs who need homes who are in rescues or adoption agencies absolutely well that was a lot all right yeah <laughs> it was it was so that's our first is that our first dog specific episode i guess we did one on breed standards or breed specific legislation before oh god camille 27 episodes and, yeah. and two pizzas ago i can't i can't remember <laughs> that was a long time ago well, that was good. I've been wanting to do that for a long time. We'll have to touch on some of these things in a bit more depth. But yes, I think we did do breed-specific legislation with a guest speaker, actually. Yeah, it was Alana. I'm glad we got into dogs. This will probably be our most popular episode ever. It's all about dogs. Everyone dogs, loves dogs, dogs, dogs. We all love dogs. Heroes and Zeros. All right, and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Heroes and, and Zeros. zeros. <laughs> oh, we got some good ones for you today. Yeah, there's a cool story from New Zealand, Peter, that you dug up online. The New Zealand Animal Law Association and SAFE. What does SAFE stand for? SAFE is Save Animals from Exploitation. Good, an animal rights group. So the animal law people and the animal rights people are teaming up. And they filed a case against the New Zealand government about the ongoing use of farrowing crates for pigs. So what are farrowing crates? Farrowing crates are the crates that pork, uh, pork, geez, pigs uh, go into uh, during the process of uh, weaning 
they're young. So essentially, um, when they're in this crate, it's a terrible place where they have to stay um, during the process of weaning. So as a result, they stay in those crates for ex extensive periods of time while they're animal, where they're young or feeding. And those are these crates are like the worst thing on earth. The animals can't move around. They have to lie down. They can barely stand up. It's it's a terrible place. Yeah, and they've actually been banned outlawed in many states, and they're sort of being phased out in Canada. Yeah, and New Zealand's been pretty good on this stuff. I obviously come from New Zealand from before, and I did all my work there early, but this has been an area that the pork industry has fought tooth and nail, and it's just been very difficult, and unfortunately, what has happened in these areas is that the government oversight body that essentially puts regulations in place has traditionally tended to cave. This has been a back-and-forth issue, but time after time, they have caved into industry demands, even though they are not quite as industry dominated as uh, our situation here in Canada but nonetheless they've had difficulty getting it done and I think these two groups have sort of had enough. Yeah so these two groups are getting together and they're saying that pharaoh and crates are illegal and that their very existence causes significant animal cruelty in a way that's out of step with what the Animal Welfare Act requires. It's simply contrary to the intentions and obligations of that legislation to put these pigs in crates so small that they can't even turn around in them. And what the way that works in New Zealand, just to give you the legal framework very basically, it's their, their statute is in many ways not that different to us. But here's, here's essentially the way it works. They have clear standards by which you have to keep animals. And the one that's most relevant for our purposes is you have to display the opportunity, the ability to display um, normal patterns of behavior. Now, the, the way it also works is that they are allowed, the New Zealand Animal Welfare Act allows um, this group called NAWAC, which is sort of an oversight body which is populated with both farmers and animal advocates and they're allowed to create codes that you can use as a defense if you fail to comply with the basics of the act. But the basic idea is that your ability to create these codes are limited and there are actually standards that suggest that you shouldn't just be able to use any reason you want for derogating from the act. The, the idea being that the act is supposed to be the predominant force and that act is supposed to set clear standards for what animal welfare should be. So again, the idea here would be that, well, we need farrowing crates because it's economically effective to raise pigs in this way. And the idea, what I think they want to challenge in court, is to suggest very clearly that these farrowing crates cause a great deal of harm and suffering and there is simply not good reason to allow you to derogate from that standard in the circumstances. All right. Well, I think that's a pretty cool case. We're going to be watching this one closely. It gives me ideas for things we can be doing up here potentially. So, and, and just let me say a kudos. We gave them a hero because I'm very excited that my colleagues over in New Zealand, this is the first time they've done this. Way back in the early 2000s, I was part of a challenge against the same sort of thing that went in versus a battery hen cage. NAWAC refused to knock out a battery hen cage and they said well, we're going to allow it for this period of time because it's useful for this thing and that thing and we sort of challenged it under um, um, a less formal process it was called a regulations review committee in parliament oh. and the best part the good news and bad news the regulations review committee committee came back after our legal submissions and said we agree with you this is improper. They did consider improper things. The problem is that the Regulations Review Committee can only offer advisory opinions. It's not binding on the minister. So the minister just said, yeah, we disagree. And that was the end of that. Oh. It, it was a ridiculous idea. It was, it was based on the idea that Parliament had to have a committee that could over
oversee, but Parliament could not compel the executive to do things in a particular way. So they put out this wonderful report, and it went nowhere. So I think what they're trying to do here is something more legal, really take them to court and force the executive to have to comply with what the court says. We'll be watching it. And for every hero, there's a zero. All right. And this time we are going to rant for a minute. Hopefully not too long. We're Just not going to spend all our, all our night on this because we've got some vegan ice cream to eat. But I do. We, <laughs> poor Carly Lewis. Poor, poor Carly Lewis. There's a piece in the Globe and Mail last weekend called Thanks to Vegans, My Vegetarianism Has Become a Source of Shame. It's by a writer named Carly Lewis. She's a Toronto-based writer, apparently. Um, I just want to start off by saying... The term she's writer not a, is used loosely here. I also want to say that the term vegetarian is used very, loosely. very loosely, loosely here because she talks about, in the article, how yes. she eats fish. So right. she's a pescatarian at best. But just that aside, it's kind of a, a long, rambly complaint that, it is a complaint that vegans make her feel guilty. Vegans are mean. We make her feel bad. We're not only mean to her, we're mean to everybody because vegans make people f- are part of a cult that make people feel bad about what they're eating and have lost all sense of reality. We are also, we are discriminatory, Camille, because poor people cannot afford vegetarian food. And as she likes to point out, vegetarian meals are much more complicated to make and much more costly. Um Where to start? The biggest struggle for me in this was trying to decide what was more troubling about the article, the atrocious writing or the atrocious logic. It was was tough because there's some tortured writing in there. Um, She likes to use very big words, and she likes to string them together in sentences. There's, look what's in there, my God, megalomaniacal. There's megalomaniacal. There was, um, further up, you scroll down, but there was, there were just, it's just one you know, throw in, oh, shibboleth. She got shibboleth. Fantastic. Good job. That's a great word. Good job. Good job. Um, it Bombastically, boy, just, it just keeps going. It is, it is, it is really just a, a really despicable article that loses all sense of reality in the sense of the logic of what it's saying. Well, okay, so she's essentially trying to paint a picture of veganism as a cult. Um, being vegan or vegetarian could be a level-headed personal choice, but has morphed into a sect that feels borderline Scientological. So it's an attempt to portray what is a movement uh, focused on compassion for animals, because that's what, at the, what is at the core, as a bunch of crazy people doing things, trying to guilt others into doing them. Uh, so what frustrates me about it, I mean, a lot of things frustrate me about this piece, but is that there's no focus on the animals. Like the writer forgets that people go vegan and stay vegan because they want to avoid causing suffering to others. And it's a movement about reducing that suffering and being as best as we can be for animals. But the consideration of the animals is like, it, it really is nowhere in this piece, which must be close to 3,000 words. And, and it concludes, of course, with her decision to go back to meat eating because because vegans are too mean. I'd rather be a gracious member of society who respects the choices of others than unwittingly bolster a clique gone off the rails. And whatever, I, do whatever you like, woman. I, I don't really care. But 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 what's amazing is how idiotic most of the logic is. Um, I, I I struggle. I'm just pointing out a couple of things. But like the basic idea that um, veganism is somehow discriminatory. Is, is utterly, has got to be the most ludicrous and, and tone-deaf thing I've ever heard. It, it completely ignores the facts of the situation, which is that the costs of even the most, 
I don't even want to use extreme vegan ingredients are coming down dramatically as more people go vegan. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's utterly witless. It makes no sense. The costs of soy milk and the costs of, of, of various meat substitutes vis-a-vis meat and dairy have, have come down dramatically and will only continue to go down as more people use them. Yeah, yeah, there's that for sure. And then there's the very fact that eating plant-based, so legumes, lentils, fruits, nuts, vegetables, grains, these are some of the least expensive foods. I mean, they're not as heavily subsidized as dairy and meat, which is another thing we can talk about like on another commun- day. It's, but it's so most much of the world, work. most of the world, Peter, eats a plant-based diet. So, so much vegan, more work, Camille. Plants. So much more work. She, I, I feel bad for Carly because preparing a good vegetarian meal, what it, she does say this, correct, is just so much more complicated. So yeah, much more complicated. complicated, expensive. Anyway, that's certainly not the lived experience of people who are veg. Um, I don't think we should spend any more time no, talking about not. it. No, let's not. Carly, I'm done with you. This was a ridiculous article. I hope you have a very wonderful life eating your meat on the side. I honestly don't care. Do whatever you want. I will never try to shame your 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 meat eating or whatever it is you're doing. I will try to shame your, your terrible use of logic when you decide to put it on the front page of the Globe and Mail. Yeah, I, I think it falls a little bit below the Globe's usual standards, but I have to say it, it, it may not be a good piece, but I'm glad that people feel the need to be talking about veganism. That's only a good thing. You go, Carly. All right, that is it for another edition of Pawn Order. We are going to get our vegan ice cream. We are going to go sit down and try and enjoy it and settle down after all the excitement of this wonderful last episode of Heroes and Zeros. We'll talk to you on the next edition of Pawn Order. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Paw & Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw & Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Lavchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Earth.